I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land of which I am today, the Wajak people of Noongar Buja country. I'd like to pay my respects to all elders past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, First Nations peoples listening today. Welcome back to Eco Impactors, a podcast brought to you by Orangutan Alliance. My name is Blaine Edwards, and on this podcast, we talk with eco innovators, thought leaders, and change makers who are impacting our planet for the better. If this sounds like you, then feel free to subscribe, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome back, Eco Impactors. My name is Blaine Edwards, and today we are joined by Dr. Nigel Hicks and Sarah Fell Hicks, the co founders of Orangutan Veterinary Aid, or OVAID for short, a UK charity that provides vet equipment, medicines, and practical expertise to orangutan rescue teams in Indonesia. So, Sarah and Nigel, cheers for coming on the show. Hi, Blaine. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Thank you for having us. Yes. No worries at all. Uh, really looking forward to diving into this conversation. But before we start, can you guys please give our listeners a brief overview of Ovade and the work that you guys do? Yeah, sure. Well, we, we've been working with Orangutan for about 12 years now, I guess, since two, 2009. Uh, but we started Ovade in 2014. So we'd already been working with Orangutan for, for about five years. Um, and we, we came to sort of realize that there was a, a need amongst the, certainly amongst the veterinary teams of most of the rescue centers, uh, certainly in Indonesia, uh, a need for equipment and for medicines. Not everything is, is available in Indonesia and some things are really expensive, difficult to obtain. Um, and we felt that, that uh, with our sort of backgrounds, uh, with our veterinary backgrounds, we could, we could probably sort of help in some way. So we, we started out uh, initially as, as um, sort of a supplier of medicines and equipment, as you just sort of mentioned. Um, so we're a small sort of grassroots charity. We've actually intentionally tried to keep it small because we, we're a sort of a small sort of niche charity, just, just supplying mainly the veterinary teams at these centres. Um, but we felt that by keeping it small, we could minimise overheads uh, and maximise the amount that, that we were able to, to deliver to, uh, to each sort of centre. Uh, and then as we've sort of grown, we've progressed sort of slightly more from just simply the supply of this medicine and equipment. Uh, we realized there was a need for uh, maintenance and upgrading the equipment. There was a need for training when this equipment is, uh, is placed in centers. Uh, and we've sort of moved slightly from just simply doing that to also trying to help train and to provide sort of opportunities for, for, for the vets in the centers. Uh, so certainly when we're, here in the UK, we, we try and sort of spread the word about sort of deforestation and climate change. We speak to schools and public um, universities, etc. Um, but when we're in Indonesia, we're concentrating primarily on, on hopefully delivering donations. Yeah, awesome. So you, you touched a bit on this uh, just in that section there, but could you please elaborate a little bit more on the inspiration be behind Ovade? So what inspired you to start this project in the first place and perhaps the, the the mission for for this project as well well having worked in a, a rehabilitation center in in malaysian borneo for well over a five-year period um 
that was a government in Malaysia, the, the orangutan centres, rescue centres are government owned and funded. Um, so you tend to find that they have most of the things that you need there. Um, but what we would, at the same time, the charity we were working for at that point was sending us into Indonesian Borneo. And um, it hit us like a hammer that it was a world away from, from uh, Malaysian Borneo. Um, it's almost, just you could only describe it as sort of maybe um, Malaysian Borneo 20 years ago because the deforestation is happening so rapidly in, in, Indonesian, in Indonesia. Um, so at the rescue center we were at, it's, it, uh, in Malaysia, they might get one baby a year rescued. And suddenly we were going into these other centers where they were having, you know, that a, one, maybe more than that a week. So, and in Indonesia, none of the centers are government, fund, government run, they're all charity run and they don't get any government funding. So suddenly we realized we were kind of felt we were in the wrong place. We needed to be to, to really help in what in ways we could help. We needed to be in Indonesia. Um, and it was on one of those trips that we actually, um, it was, we, we were working with Centre for Orangutan Protection, COP, and we met up with the vet, in, uh, Dr. Imam, um, a young a young vet, and um, he was running two rescue teams, so two two units. And we had said to him, you know, can you show us your? Well, we actually said, can you show us your clinic, your vet clinic? And he laughed. <laughs> and then he and then, and then we said, well, can you show us what equipment you've got and what medicines you've got? And he walked away and he came back with a tiny little rucksack. And there wasn't, there was an old bottle of antibiotics out of date and there wasn't, there was a stitch up kit, which probably wouldn't have even stitched up a cat. And that was all he had. So although he was being funded by another, another um, charity, as far as his wage was concerned, um, he had nothing to be able to do his job. And he would be rescuing orangutan from pretty horrendous situations, you know. Um, and we just thought we've got to help him you know we can help him we can come back to the UK and we promised him we we would come back next time with us you know he wanted he wanted a microscope well I've, you know I've never seen someone so excited when we took him a microscope um but just and it went from there people friends gave us donated us gave us money to buy this this equipment and then you know from there it just went that other centres were asked, giving us wish lists, and then it just got to the point where, although we had never intended to start a charity, we had to sort of, we had to because we realised that we could do a lot more than uh, than just buy a bit of equipment for one vet. So that's that's where the inspiration, inspiration happened. Yeah, well, it definitely makes sense. So it seems like there was um, like a infrastructure um, problem around orangutan conservation rehabilitation. And there was a lack, like a disconnect between the people on the ground and even like basic equipment and whatnot. And you, given the expertise and your experience, you found like this was an area that you could provide some some value in. And so you put your hand up and yeah. and gave it a go. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess so. I, I think probably what what does tend to happen is that you know, as Sarah sort of mentioned in, in certainly in Indonesia, the 
the, the centres are all uh, charity funded, they're all NGOs. Um, so the budget is always stretched. You know, there, there, there's, there's always a, a limitation on that budget. And obviously, uh, you know, they have to provide staff, they have to, uh, to uh, provide cages, they have to provide feed for the orangutans, all those logistical things in, inevitably take up the primary budget. And, and sometimes I think as, as, as vets, we're, we're sometimes our own worst enemies because we uh, generally are pretty good at sort of making do with what we have. Um, so I, I think very much it's sort of looked upon, well, the, the main budget, you know, obviously has to go to the main infrastructure of the centre. Um, so therefore, the, the actual specific veterinary budget can sometimes be, be pinched, even though it's a critically endangered species. Mm-hmm. So you guys have obviously been working in, in Indonesia, Malaysia, Borneo for a number of years. Could we maybe zoom out a bit because we're in, in unique times at the moment with COVID, uh, COVID-19. Could you talk about the overview of the situation in Indonesia and Malaysia at the moment and how this pandemic is affecting them just from like a general point of view? And then we can dive in specifically to how this is affecting kind of the work that you're doing in orangutans as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the pandemic obviously has, has impacted us all, you know, tremendously. Uh, and, and certainly it, it has done in the centres. I mean, unfortunately, Indonesia has just very recently had a really sort of serious peak in, in COVID cases. I think sort of last month, um, you know, they, they have, they've had something like 135,000 deaths now. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think it's subsiding slightly now in Indonesia. The, you know, um, India is still probably sort of way ahead in terms of, of the number of cases, but but up until sort of just literally sort of the last week, they've had a really severe problem there in Indonesia. Um, and it, I, whether that's the Delta variant, but certainly it seems to have almost hit Indonesia a little bit later than, than certainly us, certainly here in the UK. Um, and I think currently in Indonesia, only about 20% of the population are, are vaccinated. So they, they, they're facing a real sort of ongoing problem at the moment. Um, and of course, they don't really have the sophistication of the health and welfare systems that we have in the West as well. So, so the, the people are certainly struggling and the centres have had a, a, a problem. The centres have done really well. Uh, as soon as the pandemic hit, the centres all closed down. And most of these sort of centres in, in Indonesia don't normally take visitors. Uh, but they immediately shut their doors. They, they had sort of uh, disaster plans in place. Um, uh, in preparation and they put those into place immediately. So the centres closed, um, researchers were sort of stopped from going to the centres, they restricted the number of people entering, uh, all in an effort to, to prevent the virus obviously from affecting, from affecting the orangutan. But logistically had a, it, was a, it was a huge problem. So sort of translocations stopped, releases stopped, um, which meant that, um, but of course, rescues, unfortunately, were still sort of ongoing. So that meant that numbers were starting to build up within the centres. So there was immediately a problem with, with cages. Most of the centres, you know, won't have sufficient cages, won't have as many cages as they would like, and certainly not for quarantine. So that presented them with the problem. Um, the, the keepers and the vets had to be split into teams. Uh, which was quite sort of sensible. So that at least meant that if one team was working and had a positive case, that team could be pulled out, you know, and another vet team or keeper team could be could be put in. But there were also sort of huge problems, in, certainly at the start of the pandemic. Uh, I mean, PPE was 
was in short supply worldwide. Uh, and and you know, although the centers have a certain sort of stock, they started to use much more PPE, naturally more disinfectant, more masks, etc. So they were struggling to be able to purchase those, to even get them. And then when they could get them, they were really expensive. Um, there were problems with even with food for the orangutan. Some of the local sort of lockdowns meant that food supplies uh, were limited, uh, simply couldn't be obtained. And then they had the problem of limiting the number of people actually entering the centres. So, so uh, uh, people providing food you know, weren't allowed in the centres that they had been. Uh, so logistically, it was, it was very much a nightmare. What, what has happened, though, is that the, uh, currently the, the, there are no cases in the orangutan. Um, the centres have had cases in their vet teams, but they've managed to keep it away from the orangutans. So they've done a sterling job, really, uh, mm. and worked really hard. Um, and currently, at the, the moment, um, things are sort of fairly stable. The centres all remain closed, though, and will do, uh, will do so for the foreseeable future, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so there's... It has impacted the work that you guys are doing, and you, you have... You have been having to adapt and and everyone i guess involved in the spaces is, is having to adapt to how they can provide care and and do the work on the ground um where you, you touched on i guess the orangutans and that fortunately there haven't been any orangutan cases of covid i'd love to explore i guess the linkage between um covid19 and, and orangutans and wildlife in general because often people forget that you know these can also uh, crossover species. Um, but before we dive into that, can we talk about a zoonotic disease and kind of define what that is? And then we can kind of move on to specifically how uh, orangutans are, can be potentially affected by um, zoonotic diseases and COVID-19. So to start with, what is a zoonotic disease? Okay, so Briefly, a, a zoonotic disease is a disease which spreads from animals to humans, or a pathogen which spreads from, from animals to humans. So, so the, the, the disease will carry from a, you know, certainly like a wild population to, to humans. Uh, and, and obviously, I think zoonosis is a word that's, you know, become suddenly sort of uh, very popular, obviously, in the, in the last sort of 18 months or so, uh, as people have become aware of COVID and, it, and its sort of source. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the general definition. And so with orangutans, what is the susceptibility of orangutans to um, SARS-CoV-2? What's that look like? Uh, we, we, we don't know for certain. Unfortunately, you know, these, these things are uncertain. We think they are highly susceptible. Um, orangutans possess the same ACE2 receptors. In, in fact, all great apes and um, the old world monkeys African and Asian monkeys possess this ACE2 receptor, which we have as humans. And that ACE2 receptor sort of allows the virus to attach to the cells and to attack the body. Um, and they possess exactly the same ACE2 receptors as we do in humans. And then in addition to that, orangutans are particularly susceptible to respiratory infections normally. They're very susceptible to, for example, human flu um, and, and respiratory infections in general. So we think that covid represents a, a real threat to, to the orangutan. Uh, we think they would be highly susceptible. So far, there have been no reported cases in the orangutan themselves, but there were cases in gorillas in San Diego Wildlife Park, uh, I think in America last year, where they had a small group of gorillas 
which tested positive to SARS-CoV-2 and in fact was PCR tested as COVID-19, COVID probably coming from a keeper in that case. Um, but those gorillas were affected and we assume, mm. as I say, that orangutans being another great ape would also be. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so interesting. So at the moment, obviously tourism's kind of at a standstill at the moment, but we anticipate in the near-ish future that things are going to open up again and there's going to be a lot of people wanting to travel the world, probably to Indonesia, Borneo. What are some risks that associated when the tourism starts opening up in terms of orangutans? Like, have you thought about that and maybe ways that we can mitigate any potential threats when tourism opens up normally? Yeah, I think, I think I mean, we're, we're sort of talking about zoonoses. Um, we also are always concerned um, about anthropozoonoses, big word, but anthropo So zoonoses are pathogens which pass from animals to humans. Anthropozoonoses are pathogens which can go both ways. So humans mm -hmm. can pass them to animals, animals. So, so certainly as far as orangutan are concerned, we're always concerned about both. Um, there may be sort of hidden viruses that we don't know about uh, in the orangutan population and other wildlife population. Um, interestingly, if, if, if you look at the big sort of picture, we, we have about 250 viruses which cause disease in humans. But there are probably about 1.6 million, I think the latest figures I saw are somewhere in the region of one and a half million viruses in the environment on Earth. Um, and about 700,000 of those have the potential to infect humans. So th there's this huge sort of pool of infection that we, we sort of know about, but we, we don't know too much about, which is, which is potentially there. And the same can go for the, for the wildlife. We don't know how very often how human diseases uh, will affect wildlife when they cross over. Whether there's a mutation or not, that disease in a, in a different species can, can produce different signs. So there is a huge risk, I think, always in any sort of contact with orangutan, which is why when, if you look at most of the pictures coming out of the centres, you'll see people wearing PPE, even in normal times, not just during COVID, masks and gloves, etc. When we enter sort of centres in Indonesia, we have to undergo a quarantine period of a minimum of 10 days uh, if we've travelled. We have to have various sort of tests. We have to have annual tuberculosis tests, HIV tests, sure. tests for brucellosis, tests for salmonellosis sometimes. There's a whole sort of list. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, most tourists don't have to fulfil those sort of health requirements. So it's quite possible for tourists to get off an international flight and within a few hours be in quite close contact with, with orangutan certainly within sort of the 10 meter distance. And that, that poses a real ongoing threat, I think, which is perhaps just amplified now with this sort of, with the current COVID situation, where people are now much more aware of perhaps in the last sort of 12, 18 months of how these respiratory diseases can spread so easily. You know, we have the two meter distance, the mask wearing, et cetera, uh, which has become norm for most of, most of us when previously we never even thought about it. Um, but we, so we do worry about orangutan. We do worry when tourism resumes. Um, I think COVID is something that we are going to have to live with. Uh, it's going to be about for quite a long time. Just how severe it is um, remains to be seen, but, but it is one of those diseases which 
potentially can can cause sort of havoc. And, and and I think the worry with COVID probably is if it got into the orangutan population, we're dealing with a already a critically endangered species hmm. and low numbers. You know, there are what eight hundred Tapanuli orangutan in Sumatra. Uh, it wouldn't take much to to wipe out that sort of whole population. So. I think when, when tourism, if and when tourism resumes, we perhaps need to be even more careful than we have been in the past in terms of distancing people from orangutan and trying to avoid close contact. Yeah, definitely. And I think also when we get to that point as a tourist, being proactive about doing your research around how we can reduce our chances of potentially doing something harmful because there may not necessarily be these things in place that will be like, you need to do this. You need to do this. They may not be there. So be, be proactive and do your research as a, as a conscious tourist. I, I think that's probably a, a word ethical tourist, whatever yeah, you want I to think, call it. I think, pe- think people, um, you know, they clearly, clearly go to um, Borneo and Sumatra to see orangutan because they love them. But uh you know, they, they just they just have to be really, like you say, they have to be really aware. Um, you know, we've seen so many situations where pe- people have put themselves and their experience before the mm. caring whether or not that orangutan later dies. You know, we're at the other end. We're at the end where we're dealing with the orangutan dying because a tourist has got too close or a tourist has fed an orangutan, you know, so... It couldn't be clearer to us how important it is that people do, like you say, you know, some of these places there aren't, the rules aren't in place or they're not, they're not, um, you know, nobody's enforcing them or, or the fact that, you know, people are in the forest and there's no one there to enforce them. <clears throat> um, so it's very much, we've got to get out there how important it is that that your experience of seeing an orangutan must not in any shape or form uh, have any negative effect on that orangutan or the baby, the mother and baby. You know, if, if you, if you, if a mother gets sick, baby dies. There isn't, it's not like a troop. They haven't got an auntie who will take that baby and care for it. You've just wiped out two generations just because you wanted to feed that that orangutan or your guide let you feed that orangutan so um you know it must be it's very much you know there's a lot of responsible guides out there and uh people people mustn't be tempted to put their experience over the species yeah definitely i think that's a good rule of thumb with this sort of tourism wildlife tourism conservation tourism however you want to word it this sort of tourism is is different because you're interacting with other species that can suffer they have feelings they have all these different things so it's not like you're just um you know going to an art gallery and that's you know that's a form of tourism as well it's very different so a rule of thumb would be when you're doing this sort of wildlife tourism the priority should always be the wildlife and any experience that you may want to have if that's at the detriment of the wildlife then rethink it because mm-hmm. the, the wildlife should always be the priority in this kind of situation. Definitely. Um, you, you talked about at the moment, there aren't any cases of uh, orangutans with COVID, uh, which is a good thing. 
Can you maybe expand on the the overall status of orangutans during this time? Like you, you mentioned the Tapanuli orangutan, there's, there's three digits where we're talking about maybe 800 orangutans. When we're talking across three the three species, what's kind of the status of the orangutans in 2021? Well, figures are sort of accurate figures are, are difficult to come by. Tapanuli, we certainly, as we sort of mentioned, we think there are approximately sort of 800. The, the problem that the Tapanuli orangutan has is that that popula population of 800 is currently split certainly into three main groups. Um, mm. So, so you have sort of, you know, maybe 200 in in perhaps one group of, of those sort of Tapanuli orangutan, and that's probably barely uh, genetically viable long term. So, so. You know, an infection getting into into small group like that certainly could could wipe those out. In terms of orangutan in Sumatra, probably I think we all agree there's somewhere in the region of about fourteen and a half thousand, perhaps Sumatran orangutan. So eight hundred Tapanuli, fourteen and a half thousand orangutan in Sumatra. Borneo is more difficult to to give an accurate estimate, and and you'll see sort of figures from anything from maybe sixty thousand, perhaps up to a hundred thousand, but certainly no more than that. So these numbers aren't huge, you know, these, these, these all are critically endangered and, and any disease getting into those could, could potentially cause a, a major problem. But the big problem also, as, as we sort of mentioned over the Tapanuli, is that, that these are not huge populations of orangutan either, they're, they're fragmented populations. Um, and a lot of these fragmented populations can't survive long term. So we need to find a solution uh, in, in some way of trying to sort of perhaps possibly joining up some of these. Yeah. So even the overall population is one number, but then you need to also factor in how that population is fragmented. And depending on how the degree of that fragmentation, that could influence the viability of those smaller pockets of orangutans as well, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah I'm no scientist, but that's kind of what it seems like. Um could we so we've talked about COVID? Could we maybe touch on um, some other threats based on kind of your experience working in this area? Um, yeah. So, what are some other threats out there related to orangutans? You know, we talked about tourism. I know deforestation's one. The illegal wildlife trade, human uh, orangutan conflict. Could you maybe touch on some of those with orangutans? Yeah, they're, they're, I mean, they're all tied together, I guess, really. You know, the, the, it stems from the deforestation. You know, with increasing urbanisation, with an increasing demand for, for agriculture, for land for agriculture, be that palm oil or what else, uh, logging. Um, and, and as soon as you carve a road into a section of forest, uh, it's sort of a, a bit of a, a death knell, really, for, for that sort of area, because you immediately provide access for sort of poachers and hunters, uh, so mm. you're beginning to facilitate the, the wildlife trade there. Um, and, that, you know, there's still a significant amount of sort of poaching and hunting, which, which does sort of go on. But you're, you're, you're making access easier, and that inevitably is going to ultimately bring people in closer contact, and you're going to have increasing human orangutan conflict. Um, so so the, as Sarah sort of mentioned there just a little bit sort of earlier, you know, we... we, we tend to work at the sharp end of that uh, and we see the results of, result of that and that that is that you have an awful lot of 
orangutan of various ages entering centres in, in various states of disrepair. Um, mm. You know, mentally traumatised, physically traumatised, um, wounded, you know, machetes, bullets, etc., etc. And And that can be really sort of disheartening, but also rewarding if you can sort of have some success and manage to solve that. But so, so Sarah, has, Sarah has a really good expression, which is that, you know, we're sort of the, the sticking plaster on a big wound. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're helping those individual orangutan as sort of welfareists, but the, the, the bigger picture is that deforestation, mm. human orangutan conflict, which is, which is bringing those orangutan. And we have loads of, sort of stories of, of individual that, that we have sort of seen that have, that have you know, suffered as a result of, of that human orangutan conflict. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that the work that you're doing is is kind of like applying this this big necessary band-aid. Um, and I think that's it's important to kind of distinguish the problems out into maybe root problems and then symptoms of the root problem. And you kind of need to address address both simultaneously. You need to apply band-aids because band-aids are important, but then ultimately you need to apply medicine to the root problem as well. Like both need to be addressed. Uh, simultaneously um, and we're talking about fragmented populations earlier and I imagine these roads also contribute to that fragmentation in some ways as well like and I think a lot of people may not um, see that I mean I first didn't think of a road as like almost like this barrier walling off certain sections of orangutan populations but effectively um, roads have that effect as well um, and but i don't think about the access so these roads provide access for potential exploitation as well i don't think of that angle before before you mentioned that no and i think it, it, it is an important point i think it's you know it, you know the forest the jungle is sort of relatively inaccessible but as soon as you start to to open it up you, you do sort of create these sort of opportunities and and obviously an orangutan can can cross a road um, the problem comes though with you know the, the plantations are huge, um, so you can you know I've travelled for you know one or two hours along a road through through plantations before, uh, so that and they are sort of huge. The only interesting point is, uh, and it sort of comes into this sort of fragmentation is we've always sort of in the past believed that for example orangutan couldn't survive in palm oil plantations. Um, but there is now evidence that orangutans do survive within these plantations, either in small uh, pockets of forest which, which remain within the plantations, um, or certainly on the edge of plantations, and orangutans will move from the edge of plantations and uh, back into to the forest. Um, but, the, the, but recent evidence is, is certainly a lot of work by Mark Ankren as a Hutan in uh, Malaysia has shown that orangutan actually do survive in plantations and that big male orangutans will move through plantations. Uh, and this is called into question. One, one, of, the, one of the classic things that, that has been done over the last sort of few years is um, if, a, if certainly if an uninjured adult orangutan is found, um, perhaps approaching a village, a rescue centre is called, that animal will be translocated uh, rather than taken back to the centre It'll be picked up, checked to see that it appears to be healthy and translocated to a new section, uh, hopefully a safer section of forest. Mm. Um, but we're now sort of looking at that sort of quite carefully and thinking, well, is this perhaps the best thing to do in every case? 
you're, you're picking up a, um, a, you know, male orangutans, you know, will perhaps have 25 square kilometers of forest, which is their patch, and they will circulate around that sort of patch, visiting various sort of females. Um, so if you translocate a male, you could easily be translocating him into the neighborhood of a, of a dominant male in another section of forest, in a strange area of forest that he doesn't know. So he's got to search for food. Um, so what's his survival rate? And also uh, what Mark Ankrenas has shown is that, that these males will actually travel through palm oil plantations, visiting females in different parts of the plantation. So if you translocate that male, you're actually removing the male from that situation and leaving those isolated patches females in forest um, where they won't reproduce and will they then survive. So th there's a lot of sort of new sort of thinking um, going on mm. um, in, in terms of, of, you know, how we should sort of approach you know, the, the survival of the orangutan. Yeah, but I mean, that's, that's not always, you know, there's no ideal situation. Um, you know, if there's no other choice other than that orangutan is going to be killed by villagers because, you know, the you talk the villagers are they're not they're they're poor, fairly poor people and and if they've only got a tiny patch of land to feed their whole family for the for the year and say they've got a crop of durian and an orangutan goes in and wrecks that then they they, they have a choice of either you know, killing that orangutan or wounding it in some way or it being translocated. So, you know, there, 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 it's an it's a argument that will go on forever because there is no ideal situation. They shouldn't ever have to be in that situation. So, you know, there's yeah. no ideal situation of moving them into another patch with another male because they're quite likely to, you know, come up and... Uh, come up against them, but there's also an ideal situation of leaving them to be killed. So, mm. so I think the, this tricky. problem is very complex and there's a lot of moving yeah. parts and it's probably unrealistic to think that there's going to be a solution that is like a one-size-fits-all. Um, this is a complex problem and um, unfortunately that makes things a lot harder for people like yourself that are trying to do good work. Um, but I guess that's just the nature of it. And it's probably important to acknowledge that complexity rather than mm. kind of just assume that it's a simple fix. Yeah. Um, we've been talking about problems <laughs> related to orangutans, which is obviously important, but at the same time kind of disheartening as well sometimes. So moving on to kind of solutions. So you guys are doing what you can to for orangutans using your skill set. Um, You've helped fund a training program, which is focused around upskilling vets and providing them the tools and resources in order to kind of work on the ground. Could you maybe expand on that, that training program and what that looks like? Well, yeah, I mean, recently um, that we had the opportunity of, um, there's a very experienced primate vet called, uh, wildlife vet called Dr. Joost Philippa. Um, who we've we've known for a number of years, um, and it actually uh, a situation came up where he was able to help us out. We had we had a problem with one of the digital X-ray systems that we provided to um, Boss Foundation. Um, these pieces of equipment cost forty five thousand 
pounds. So, you know, we go, we range from what we provide from, you know, like a drip set to 45,000 pounds worth. Um, and he was able to go to the centre and uh, he didn't go into the centre, but, luck, you know, luckily the piece of equipment, it was able to be bought outside the centre gates and he was able to um, sort the situation out for us. But at the same time, he was then going on to Samba, Boss Sambo de Lestari. And uh, so there was an opportunity, along with Bosch Schweitz, um, to fund for him to stay at Samboja for three months. Well, it started off as two months. Um, and to help train the, the vet team to, for upskilling, for doing, I don't know, how many surgeries did they do in the end? They did sort of over 20 orangutans and over 30 sunbears, I think. Yeah, so... So the, the, the vets were learning, you know, that they were literally doing the surgery. He would be doing the surgery with them. Um, and then after a while, when he was confident that they were able to do it, he would step back and, and then they would be doing the, the, the surgery with, or the whatever it was that they were doing um, with him there. Because um, it's, it's really important that, uh, that that, you, that you're not just there and you're just showing them and that's it, you just go. Um, that you know that you know that they've, they've understood and that they're confident. Um, because, you know, when you go into a centre, you know that if they don't know you already, um, it takes a while for them to, you know, you both to gel and them to relax. So you can't sort of just go in and say, that's how you do it and go again, you know. And then accept, expect them to not have questions about how to do it. So we felt it was really important. It's probably one of the best projects that we've been involved with, of, of actually having the having him there for enough of a period for them to be confident around him, to not be scared to admit that they don't know how to do something. Because you know we're all learning. You know everybody's mm -hmm. always learning. And so it's important that, that, that they felt that they had the, that they were confident in, in everything that he was teaching them and that they could, and that he was, he's very approachable and certainly non-judgmental. So he, he would help them in any way he could and to support them and to get them to grow as vets because um, at the end of the day, they're the ones there all day, every day. It's the vet teams there. We're only supporting them. Um, so, you know, if, if we could boost the um, health, certainly with the, the welfare of the orangutan and the sun bear, but at the same time teach the, you know, get this. The, so now, you know, those vets can all do all that surgery on their own, which they couldn't do before. So the long term welfare benefits for, for certainly um, both boss centres, because we had... Um, Vets come from other centres as well. So, you know, we're a charity that works with all the centres. So, you know, we if, if somebody can go and train at one centre, then it's better if you can get vets coming from other centres, if there's a specialist put in place that, so that more vet, the more vets that can learn, the better. So, mm. yeah, I don't know what you, do you want to say anything about the project? No, I don't. I mean, hopefully, you know, it has sort of long-term benefits. And I think that there's, there's sort of in-situ training and ex-situ training, and I think they both have a place. Um, but, but certainly this project 
has has proved to us, I think, the, the the value of having an extended period with somebody with with specialist knowledge um, to be able to to impart that to to produce long term benefits. So it's something I think that we'll be looking for. This I, I sort of I touched on it earlier when I was saying that you know our, our core our core function, if you like, is to supply the equipment and the medicines that these vet teams need. But it's also important that they have the facility to be able to use them and the knowledge and the skill set increasing all the time. So I, I think it's something that we will look at in the future as, as a real sort of possibility for change. And also, yeah. you know, he did a lot of the keeper training as well. So and, and empowering the keepers to, to feel to feel that their job is is a, a really worthwhile job, that it's not just uh, I'm just a keeper, you know, to make to help make them understand why things are done in a certain way or need to be done in a certain way, especially if you're going in and changing something that they've been, you know, and vets as well that they've been doing for years, and suddenly you go there and say, well, actually, what about trying it this way? And then, but you need to, you know, for the keepers, you need to explain why they're, they're doing that, and and also to to make them feel you know, because they are invaluable, you know, we, these centres couldn't work without the, the uh, keepers and to give them a sort of a, um, a passion as to why they're doing what they're doing. And it's not just a, a job and it is an, it's a very important job. Um, so, you know, he, he was not only training the vets, but the, the whole, the whole team. And, and that, that was important. I felt. Yeah, I, th I think sort of empowering people is is sort of vital. It, it's it's also worth remembering too that most of these centres are in pretty remote locations, um, and and also um, from 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 the veterinary aspect, if, if you are successful and are able to qualify as a vet in Indonesia, um, you you potentially ha suddenly have have the ability to and earn an income to support your family. So obviously, uh, if you were then to, to qualify and go into, for example, small animal work in Jakarta or Singapore and so on, um, it, it represents a, a huge sort of step up and the ladder for those. So, so these guys that actually opt for wildlife work, poorly paid wildlife work in really remote centres are really and truly dedicated. And they, they often can sort of struggle with the remoteness of the location, the lack of facilities, the lack of social uh, contact, etc. Being away from their family. Um, so, I think then, but you know, if you can empower people and you know, both vets and keepers in these sort of centres to, to so that they sort of appreciate their value and they can also see opportunities to improve and opportunities to change, they're more likely to um, to get more from from their working environment they're more likely probably to stay in those sort of locations. So there'd be less of a turnover in staff perhaps, which is a, a spin-off perhaps of something like um, this sort of training project. So uh, yeah, overall, it's been really beneficial. Yeah, empowering the people involved in this space is really important. And when we're talking about kind of addressing root problems and, and symptoms and, and that sort of stuff, empowering people with the knowledge and the training, that is like a, a fundamental kind of thing that you're doing and I imagine it has a ripple on effect once these people have this training and the, this tool set and skill set they can then pass on that wisdom to other people and then it becomes like the snowball effect uh, which is obviously a positive 
So I, I definitely like like what you guys are doing there and, and who you're partnering with and everyone involved in that ecosystem. Um, for, for vets that are looking to get involved with conservation wildlife, do you have any tips or advice for those sorts of people? That's a, that's a, that's a really tricky, that's a really tricky one, Blake. Um, yeah, I, I think it, it, it's quite difficult to get in, certainly to get into um, veterinary conservation welfare work in, in Southeast Asia. Um, you know, the, the opportunities are relatively limited. There aren't that many centres. Um, those centres obviously are primarily employing local vets, and quite rightly so, as it should be. You know, it's, it's, it's their country, it's their species, and, and they should be doing the job. Um, you have the complication, as I say, of, of this business of, of disease transfer. So, you know, as, as, as we sort of mentioned, when we enter a centre, we'll have to do a quarantine. We have to get visas, um, paperwork, etc., to be able to, to enter. We have to do a quarantine period. There are a lot of sort of health requirements. So just dipping in quickly is not really an option. Uh, we often are approached by people sort of saying, oh, I could go for a couple of weeks and, and help out. Um, and, and that's great idea from their point of view, but practically it doesn't really work that way. So you need to be able, firstly, I think, to commit to a longer period. And you need to be able to, I think it's important that people familiarise themselves with the area that they're going to, firstly. So if you're going to want, suddenly want to do some conservation work in, in Southeast Asia, um, there's going to be a culture shock. There'll, there'll be the environmental shock that that minute that you they open the door of the plane and you walk out into sort of you know 100% humidity and 35 degrees. Um, so the environment is going to be a shock, and, and as we mentioned, the remoteness probably and the, and the lack of facilities. So you have to be fairly stoical. You have to be confident in your own ability. Um, we've seen sort of several people, you know, uh, full of enthusiasm and professing that they're they'll be absolutely fine and then sort of folding under the conditions after a week or two, because it's just simply not for them. So I think it's important that you are aware of what you're going to. Um, I think it's also important if you can manage to gain some experience before you launch yourself into it. Now that could be through perhaps even a short volunteering program. If you're a conservationist, primatologist, perhaps working as a researcher for somebody, um, you know, in, in that environment for a while um, and I think that it, it does two things I, I think you know as I say you familiarize yourself and, and you demonstrate your sort of commitment and your passion um, and you get an inkling of of what it's going to be like and I think that is important from, from a purely veterinary point of view it, it is quite difficult so finding placements is is quite difficult but but what I would say is that you don't necessarily, I, I personally anyway, don't believe that you need any specific further qualifications to be able to do the job. Um, so you, you don't necessarily need a degree in tropical medicine. Um, it might be an advantage. It, it would be an advantage, but it's not an essential, certainly. What, what, what I often say to people is what you need is a good, solid, sound base in veterinary medicine and surgery. So, so having the skill sets is, is important. So I often sort of say to people, if you're just sort of graduating, 
get a bit of general experience first. You know, work somewhere where you are probably perhaps in an intensive practice in the UK or Australia or America where you're doing a, quite a few surgeries, you're um, doing quite a few consults, you're, you get familiar with the medicine. So you have that skill set under, under your belt. And I think then if you, if you also do have the ability to take an, an additional skill set, so whether that is perhaps you have done some emergency medicine training, perhaps you're a bit of an ophthalmologist or perhaps you do some orthopedics, um, those are great skills to take with you. Um, but I have to confess that when I started, you know, 12 years ago, I, I, I had a lot of veterinary experience from, from the UK, but I had virtually no primate experience when I was sort of launched into this. Um, a lot of treatments can be first principle medicine. So if you have the confidence and the ability to, to be able to think outside the box uh, and not to be too phased by not necessarily having all the equipment you think you need, um, you'll do sort of really well. And, and what a lot of the veterinary teams in these centres need are uh, competent vets, not necessarily super specialists. Um, you know, we can help sort of bring those in to, to, to upskill. What the, what the daily routine needs in these centres is, is a good quality um, veterinary skills. So I think for anybody thinking of getting into it, get some, get some general experience, know what you're sort of going into, be able to commit for a minimum of six months um, and the rewards will be tremendous. But you need, you need luck on your side as well to, um, to, to be able to find the opportunity. I think that was a, a great, great answer. Oh, you want to add a bit more to that? Well, I also think, you know, um, like Nigel said, it is, it is a different world out there. And it's not only a different world, but it's a different, it's a different animal. <laughs> you know, the, the shock, it, and it is a shock. You go from working with, you know, we've both worked with like, cattle, cats, dogs, you know, for most of our working lives. And then to suddenly um, find that you're working with what is, is really a hum more human than animal. Um, well, that is, you see what I mean? Um, it, suddenly there's, there's a, an animal, you know, you won't have a dog when it's feeling sick, reach for your hand and put its hand on your forehead mm. for comfort. So, and that's the only way that I can explain it. You, You've got to learn how to be around orangutan. They're not like cats and dogs. They're not like anything else that you'll have come across. So you're suddenly working with what I can only sort of explain as the shock to me was, oh my God, these are like thinking as much as we are. And they're actually outsmarting me by far quite often. Um, so, you, you know, you're working with a, with a completely different species than you're normally used to so not only do you have to go in with the veterinary skills like Nigel said and they have to be really practical skills don't go in with an air of knowledge uh, an air of I'm a western vet therefore I know more than you because the vets there you know that's that's all they're doing is working with orangutan and with wildlife so their knowledge is is massive compared to you you might be taking a certain other skill 
But we have had vets go, Western vets go there with, with an air of arrogance that is really, is quite, it can be detrimental. So it's not just the, the skill set, it's, it's the mindset. And it's getting used to working with, with, with orangutan who are extremely clever, extremely dexterous. You've got four hands and a set of teeth coming at you and seven times the strength. So don't go thinking you're dealing with a chihuahua, you know. Um, you, ha- you have to be prepared that it's, it's, it's a completely different thing. And it'll also affect you in different ways. You know, you, certainly for me, it did, you know, when when the first orangutan we ever lost was quite early on in our, when Nigel went, when we first went out to Borneo, um, Nigel was promised a 17 day handover by the vet and he got 20 minutes. So we'd never ever worked with primates before. And the difference, and why we work well as a team, husband and wife as well, but why we work well as a team is uh, the difference between us is that Mm. I was, oh, my God, we're in charge of 50 orangutan, we're going to kill them all, and they're all going to die. And Nigel was like, we'll be fine. And we were. We learnt on the, you know, but we had each other to support. So if if there was a case that was, you know, fairly traumatic, we've always got, and we've always got each other. If one's feeling down about it, then... Um, the others there to sort of say no we can do this and, and we and so so far you know we have done that and we've done some you know we're pretty humble both of us and we but but on the whole we have done some incredible work and we've saved a lot of lives but through you know humility goes a long way don't go getting cocky about it it's mm. <laughs> just just we're all there to learn and to and we're all in this because we care about the orangutan I think there's a little story there, which which is probably just sort of worth mentioning. Which Sarah just sort of saying that how how ex- you sometimes forget how experienced uh, these sort of local vet guys are, um, and that was only sort of a couple of years ago when we were in one of the centres and uh, we delivered the X-ray machine. And we were showing them how to use it, and then the, these guys were like, "Oh, I'll tell you what, we." what we'd like to do is we'd like to do it ourselves tomorrow while you're watching so that we're sure we've, we've got confidence. So we said, well, that's fine. So they said, well, we've, we've got six orangutan tomorrow that we'd like to anaesthetise and we'd like to uh, fully test, health check and an X-ray. Ultrasound. Um, so if, if you can just sort of observe, perhaps help us with a bit of the, the monitoring, that would be great, but we want to do it ourselves. Now, in... In the UK, I'm certainly, I, I probably can, I'm not a zoo vet, but I, I'll guarantee that if you were to say to one of the, the zoos in the UK, we want you to anaesthetise six orangutans tomorrow morning, they would throw up their hands and say, that's absolutely impossible. We need a couple of weeks of, of discussion. We need to talk about health and safety, <laughs> etc. We'll need to bring in an extra team and you know, we'll, we'll maybe do one in a day and that's it. Uh, and, and the next day, these guys were true to their word, um, to the extent that, that they disappeared <laughs> off to, to dart what we thought was the first orangutan. Um, and we heard a bit of noise, and around the corner came six, six fully grown orangutan in wheelbarrows in one go, all to be tested and x-rayed. And there was absolutely no messing. There, this vet team sort of went into action. They were blood tested, they were ultrasounded, they were x-rayed. 
all with sort of super efficiency. And you suddenly sort of sit back <laughs> and you think, you know, these guys really know what they're doing. And it sort of puts you in your place and you just suddenly think, actually, yeah, you know. <laughs> we I, we could have sorry. done with a picture of the shock of our faces when the six wheelbarrows <laughs> came round the corner, though. <laughs> I can almost visualise it. It's... Um, <laughs> That's so cool. It's, it's like there's this they have this action bias, which is kind of probably what you need on the ground is people that have the the bravery and whatnot to just just kind of do it. Just do it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I appreciate those answers because I'm not a vet, but if any potential future vet in training or whatever is listening to this, I think you've covered all the bases. Um, but from my perspective, it seems like. Um, there's a lot to it. You need to approach it seriously, do a lot of research, get some experience. Um, because this type of work, I imagine, if you base it purely on the photos that you see, it can be quite appealing. I mean, you're working with this exotic animal that you've never seen before, only on Instagram or whatever. So from a very superficial level, you're like, this is what I want to do. But it's, there's a lot more to it. There's a lot, <laughs> yeah. lot, lot, lot more to it. And I think you just broke down all those pieces that people need to consider. So, uh, uh, yeah, thanks for that because, yeah, there there is a lot to, to it. And we're dealing with um, an animal like humans who are they're more like us than, you know, other animals that they may be familiar with. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I don't think you can get, get across how the hard work, you know, when, when people see, like you say, you can look at a superficial thing and, and say, oh my God, I'd love to work with orangutan. And, and I, we, you know, we did, we totally understand that. But uh, yeah, the, you know, you're talking about when we've been out there, you know, we've been working 24 seven and it's not, it's not glamorous. It's, it's hard work and it can be, if you took the time to, to breathe, which we often don't have the time to, and neither do any of the, the vets out there working at the sense permanently, but, you know, because, because it's the veterinary side, you know, it's like with any, any um, A&E, really, you just, you just get on and do it, you know, and it may not be until afterwards you think of the horrific thing that you've just seen, um, but it, but it, yeah, don't go getting thinking it's a romantic, easy job because it's not. There are the rewards of working with an incredible, you know, they are incredible um, creatures yeah. to work with and we're honoured to work with them. And that's what we always say as far, you know, we're a voluntary run charity and the reason we do it is because of, we're honoured to be able to help them and mm. that's why we do what we do. Mm. You talked about that moment where, you know, if you're feeling unwell and a orangutan may, I don't know, pat you on the knee or something. Um, those moments, I imagine, it will just stay with you forever. Uh, yeah. Like even just thinking about that, that like kind of makes you just pause for a second and just I'm like living vicariously through you guys at the moment because yeah. <laughs> um, I'm here in Australia. You guys are obviously in the UK at the moment, but you you have these interactions and it is a, like a, a privilege, um, but of, there's a lot of other things to consider if, if you're wanting to venture down this path. But if you do want to venture down this path, <laughs> you guys have just touched on all the things to consider. So um, Yeah, we're not saying don't. <laughs> 
we're not saying don't. <laughs> you know, we're yeah, just saying not. just just, you know, certainly try if you can. I mean, we we're part of the Orangutan Veterinary Advisory Group, which is the uh, organization that runs the five-day workshop. Um, and normally, you know, like we say, all the Indonesian vets and Malaysian vets go there, but also people from around the world. So anyone involved, you know, there's a lot of American zoo vets, Australian zoo vets that are part of OVAG. Um, so, I mean, you can always, you know, become part of Orangutan Veterinary Advisory Group, it's called. Um, and we've taken, we you know, uh, vet nurses have come along with us. So we've gone out there with um, student vets to, to just attend the conference because, you know, they then get to meet all the vet teams. And sometimes in a way, you know, that that's one hurdle got over. Because if you just write an email to, to one of the charities saying, I'm a vet, I'd love to come and work for you. Um, well, they'll, they'll get thousands of those. But if you're a vet or a vet nurse that's bothered to take the time to, to go or attend this five-day workshop to get to know the, the vets and to and for them to get to know you because like well like we were saying earlier that's as much as an important part is that they've met you and they know you so even though you maybe not volunteered had chance to volunteer in one of the centres when your email comes through and and somebody reads it and says oh who's this you they'll then say Oh, well, I've met them and they're really nice and I think they'd be good. Or they, mm. or they may say, I've met them and actually, no. But, you know, getting involved in, in the orangutan veterinary advisory group is a really positive thing to do because and there's a huge amount of um, all, the, the, all the information they've got on their website is massive. We can link all of that as well. Yeah. We'll, we'll add all yeah. these links down so below. So that'd be yeah, something sure. else that they could do. Yeah. All right, definitely. We, we have a, just a couple more questions. One, one more question just related to Ovid and that work, and then we've got a kind of a closing question. Um, so not, not too long to go. Um, <laughs> but from, from your perspective, what's the best part of Ovid's work? Um, well, for me, um, seeing the seeing the vet spaces when we give them the equipment that uh, mm. that they've so much wanted and so much need, you know, to to give a vet, you know, vets in the UK may well just have the equipment there and it's just there. These vets don't have the, this equipment, so to suddenly give them like a digital X-ray or even any anything small, you know. It doesn't have to be like forty-five thousand pounds worth. It can be something, you know, quite small, but that they can't get hold of. And to suddenly, well, for me to go to a Rantan Veterinary Advisory Group conference and have all the vets there that work for in the centres, and to have them all literally—you have to hold them back. <laughs> but they literally just pile in on you, and the, and to see hundreds of smiling faces around you. Knowing that you're empowering them and you're enabling them to do their job the way they want to be able to do it, I mean, that and and the good the good stories of orangutan that we've we've helped and that have survived, you know, they're all things that that mm. certainly keep me going. I don't know about you. Yeah, there's not a lot to add to that. I think you know, as Sarah says, just just um, seeing those sort of like smiling faces when you when you when you 
have the ability to be able to provide, you know, perhaps a, what seems to us to be sort of a routine piece of equipment, perhaps here in everyday use in veterinary practice in the UK, but for, for them, they haven't been able to get hold of for ages. Um, that's, that's truly rewarding and that, that's what we set out to do. And when we see it happen, we're very pleased. Hmm. Yeah, I can definitely imagine that the, the, the value and the joy you get from pretty much just helping, doing good, doing your part. Um, that's, you were talking earlier about um, maybe people in Indonesia who who choose to do this work versus another work, like this work may have less money or whatever. Um, but there are these other things that kind of offset that, which are also valuable. And um, I think if you experience one of those things yourself, you'll understand it. But just talking about it, maybe that message doesn't cross, but if you're lucky enough to actually feel that moment yourself, I mean, I've, mm -hmm. I haven't had that moment myself either. I've had like smaller versions, which still do it for me. But um, once you have that, I imagine it just sticks to you and then your life has just changed forever. So um, there are a lot of value yeah, out there outside of just um, money. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, Blaine. Yeah. Closing question. Uh, I love to ask this question because often humans, they think that we have all the answers. And <laughs> but for, for me, I think there are a lot of lessons we can learn from looking out into nature. Um, you know, Mother Nature has been engineering itself for millions and millions of years. So even from, from that very engineering perspective, there's probably a lot we can learn if we just take the time. Uh, but from your perspective, working with orangutans for a number of years, what are some lessons that we can learn from orangutans? Oh, where do we start? <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think um, for, for me, I, I, I always admire their tenacity. Orangutans are really tenacious in, in what, they, what they do. Um, so they're, 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 they're tremendous sort of thinkers and observers. So you, 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 you could, anybody who's, who's sort of gazed into the eyes of them, had the privilege of gazing into the eyes of, of an orangutan directly, I always sort of say you can see the cogs turning. There's something in those sort of deep sort of brown eyes that make you think there's, there is really, somebody's looking back at me from, from in there and, and it just sort of captures you immediately. So you, you may think that the orangutan's just sitting there sort of, idly and, and, and not do much, but they really are the thinkers of, of the jungle. So they're, they're observing you, they're working out how they can achieve what they want. They're probably using you, um, but they won't give up. They, uh, um, they, won't, they won't give up. They'll, they, will, they will find a way and they'll sit there and you can see it, you know, with an orangutan, whether that's in a center and he's trying to get out of his cage or something and he'll test the lock and he'll try everything. He'll sit there and think of ways. Um, so, so I, I think their sort of tenacity. Um, I think their sort of their, their ability to trust always amazes me as well. Mm. Um, they seem to know when to sort of trust instinctively. Um, so, so I've seen, or we've both seen, sort of perhaps an orangutan arrive at a rescue centre that's been shut in a cage for several years. It's perhaps been mistreated. It's not been perhaps fed properly. Um, so it, it's, it's in a really sort of poor state, sort of mentally and, and sort of physically. And it, 
you'll open that cage and it will just hold out its hand and grab hold of you and go with you. Wow. Uh, you know, and if, if that was me, I think I would probably be coming out of that cage angry <laughs> and vicious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and it's yeah. instead of that, it's almost, it's almost as if they've, they've sort of realized what's going on and they'll, and they'll trust. And I think that's tremendous. Mm. Wow. And I think the, and, and perhaps the other thing that I think always sort of amazes me and perhaps is a, you know, a really sort of good lesson for us humans is, is the, the, the sort of the devotion and sort of the motherly love that, that orangutans give to the, to the babies. I mean, a baby orangutan stays with its mother for six, seven, eight years. And in that time, um, it will be totally dependent on her, but she will also devote all her energy to the survival of, of that baby. And she will nurture it. She will teach it. She'll, she'll show it the skills that it, that it needs. And then she also has the ability to let go at some point. And she sort of knows when she's done her job and she knows when to sort of step back um, and, and let that animal go to the wild to, <clears throat> to live its own life. <clears throat> so I think that sort of that degree of, of sort of devotion and, and trust and ability then to, after all that effort over sort of six to seven years, just to sit back and say, okay, they can go. It's your life now, off you go. Um, I, I think those are all sort of qualities that, 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 that I admire. But I also think, you know, as humans, that we must think, well, well you, could, you could sit there and say, well, any, a human mother does that. But that, that's where I always find it tricky that, that we sort of look upon it as uh, that it's different somehow. Why wouldn't they love their baby as much as a human mother? Why wouldn't they nurture them? Why wouldn't they... Why wouldn't they want to see them go on to a future? I'm not, I'm not saying, but what I'm saying is, is that, you know, humans can have the sort of, we can look upon it as if we're, we're sort of superior in some way, or that, uh, you know, that, that we look upon them. The one thing that, that drives me crazy is that people look upon, yeah, I'm the other, you see how different we are. Yin um, and yang. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm the one. I, I, what I find really upsetting is, is or it really gets to me, um, is it is when people um, sort of look upon orangutan as, as something to laugh at, mm. um, and it happens a lot in zoo. Not not so just zoos, but it happens a lot on social media. You know, for instance, the orangutan putting the sunglasses on. Well. You know, the steam was coming out of my ears over that situation. You know, it's a pandemic. My fear was we're in a pandemic that orangutan's actually in a safari park in Indonesia. It's not got a, you know, perfect life. And millions of people are sharing this. They don't, they're not caring about the one that's just been rescued. They're caring about this orangutan copying something stupid that we do. So we wear sunglasses. You know, and, and of course, what she got to do all day other than to observe humans. You know, we always think, oh, we go and we observe them. It's like Nigel said, no, no, this is a two-way thing. They're observing us. And she's seen stupid humans putting these things on her face. So she does it. Um, you know, what's so wonderful about that? They're not seeing all the amazing things that they're able to do you know we as we as humans mustn't think we're clever 
because we're not, you know, we've got this planet into the situation it's in right now. Um, Orangutan haven't. So if you took uh, one of us and you shoved us in the jungle, would we survive? You know, so they have a different knowledge and they have knowledge that we'll never know, you know. So for me, Orangutan has got so much to teach humans as a, as a, a species, like empathy, humility, um, and well, and yes, they are, and humour, they are, they are funny, you know, you can't deny they are funny, but I, if there's anything that's going to rattle my cage, it's people not seeing the whole situation. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then feel free to subscribe and we will see you in the next one.